Welcome back to the No Pressure 8 PDA podcast. Um, I realize it's been a while, but that is definitely the nature of PDA, that my consistency is my inconsistency. inconsistency. Um, I've definitely been working on content. It's just I'm all over the map as far as whether I'm making um, more infographics or recorded content. Uh, recently, I've found myself in TikTok. I like how TikTok has smaller shorter clips and I can almost do like a video diary, I guess, of things I'm thinking about and going through. Um, So if you want to find me on TikTok, TikTok, I highly suggest it. I'm also experimenting more with making short videos and reels on my Facebook and uh, Instagram. Um, Some news I wanted to share that's been happening uh, since I last uh, did a podcast is that I have actually been invited to the PDA North America conference that's in Chicago in March. Um, They're going to fly me out there and (laughs) which is like amazing. Um, And I'm going to be doing a joint presentation with uh, Sally Katz PDA um, on some of what I'm actually going to talk about today. Uh, So Sally Cat and I have been working on a book just very loosely because I've had a lot of life stuff going on and she has other projects. And so between the two of us, we've really been taking our time with this specific project because personally, I just feel like the scope of it is very large and trying to narrow down our focus, trying to figure out what's the most relevant, who are we writing this to has been a part of the process. Um... So yeah, today this podcast is going to be some of the ideas that will eventually go into the book we're going to be doing. Um, Her and I have decided here recently that the book is actually going to be uh, hopefully a PDA manual written by PDAers. So her and I, and then um, we have a couple other people that we've just been running ideas past. Um, We both have the heart of wanting whatever we write to be helpful. So with that in mind, we've been wanting to include as many voices as possible, making sure we don't get tunnel vision about our own experiences and exclude any experiences that are relevant. Um, Another aspect of that is we are trying to involve non-PDAers in helping us kind of double check that how we're writing and what we're writing is translating over to someone who's not PDA because there's a lot of parents out there who have PDA children who aren't PDA themselves and um, I can see that being a need is that however we say whatever we say I just want it to we both want it to be accessible Um, and I'm using notes today so if I stop for a second I'm not really used to notes I'm used to rambling but there's no way I can ramble this out and actually say anything coherent Um, but yeah I'm gonna be using um, this podcast I'm also gonna be using TikTok and um, reels to as kind of a format for organizing our thoughts just getting them out there because I found myself kind of freezing up with this book, um, not knowing where to start and not wanting to put my ideas out there prematurely and and adding confusion. But then also I learn by 
communication. I learn by putting my ideas out there. So it's really been a chicken egg scenario for me is like, um, what do I do first? <laughs> do I come up with all my ideas first? Well, I can't. Uh, my ideas come up through talking with other people and bouncing these ideas off of other people. So with that said, anything I say here is open to possibly being changed. Um, this means we might come up with different terminology along the way that's clearer. Um, we might adapt some ideas, shift some things around, but I need to start somewhere. And even so far, just writing out these note cards for this podcast has been like hugely helpful for me um, in, in just getting somewhere with my ideas. Um, let me look at my notes here. Okay, so this podcast today, what I'm going to be talking about is my portion, my biggest contribution to this book project. This is what I came to Sally Cat with, which was discussing trauma languages. Um, I believe that trauma languages are more expansive than what is kind of commonly tossed around. Um, and so that was kind of my goal was, you know, I think these need to be expanded. Um, today's podcast, I'm going to be breaking down the what and the why. Um, may, um, I'm going to go into more depth for each um, edition or idea that I'm introducing. I'm going to be going into more depth in probably, I have to say it that way, I'm sorry, probably in a future podcast. That's where that's going to happen. I have to say that kind of loosely because of my PDA. I don't want to get myself all anxious about expectations. Um, I also plan to talk a little bit more about differences in communication between um, non-PDA autistics, um, allistics, those are non-autistic individuals, are called allistics, allistics who've gone through trauma, and then PDA itself. So just kind of trying to differentiate how I see different types of people expressing a lot of times the same things. So we're all human. I think this is a universal language I'm going to be talking about. The only difference is being that how it is expressed and when it is when is it expressed um, as being the the key features between PDA and other individuals. Um, let's see what do I got here? said that already. Okay. So where did this all begin? What in the heck? What am I doing here? <laughs> okay. Um, where this started was, I think, about a year and a half ago, I guess maybe two years ago now. Um, Sally Cat had published a blog about expanding the F trauma responses. For those who are not aware what that means, the F trauma responses are typically known as fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. Um, those are kind of the four main ones that you're going to hear about when trauma responses are discussed. Um, I will say I, her and I both have noticed here recently that this idea to expand on the F trauma responses isn't uniquely ours. There are other um, organizations who've suggested expansions, and I've kind of looked at those and I'm still, I'm still liking um, our choices we've made and also my way of kind of categorizing them. So again, I'm open-minded about maybe making some tweaks or changes. This isn't about excluding anyone or, you know, being the best. It's just more of 
what's more efficient, what's what makes sense here is really my goal. So Sally Cat's blog, her expansion to the F trauma responses where she suggested adding the F trauma response of Funster, Flop, and Fib. Um, Funster would be, uh, she said how her daughter will get super silly or pull pranks when she's under distress. Um, so she called that the Funster trauma response. I have a an eight-year-old who is prone to the Funster trauma response as well. His looks a little bit different where it's almost, I call it the maniacal clown. Um, I've heard other parents express this as well, that, you know, it's like this super, super silly mode that their kid goes into. And it's not really that they're having a good time. It's, it's rooted in anxiety. Um, flop would be kind of what it sounds like. Flopping to the ground. Kids who say their legs don't work kind of thing. Um, that would be flop. And then fib is lying. Um, just kind of lying under duress. Um, it's, a, it's a compulsion, not really a choice in, that, in those moments when it's a trauma response. Um, once I read her blog, I really was inspired by this, this idea of, again, expanding the F trauma responses and me being me, I was like, maybe there's even more, maybe we have more trauma responses we haven't even thought about. And also what I had in mind too, when I was thinking this through was I was getting more involved in the PDA community. I was plugging into a lot of parenting groups and reading people's stories, that's the way I learn best is reading stories. And I noticed while reading people's stories, this whole range of behaviors. Um, I almost call, when I was talking to Diane Gould of the uh, PDA Society North America, I told her it was almost like reading the behaviors of an adult alcoholic. It was almost kind of amazing and it was baffling to these parents and it was baffling to the educators that these kids were behaving in such quote unquote bizarre um, unorthodox ways. So my additions with these stories in mind, with my own experiences in mind, even thinking of adults who've gone through trauma, um, I started adding a couple F's of my own. So I added um, forget and fantasy. Um, forget to me is when you're put on the spot, this is, happens to me a lot, and just your mind goes blank. You know, it's not a choice. You're not intentionally doing it. My mind just completely goes blank when I'm put on the spot. Um, so there's forget. And then um, fantasy. Um, this is not, um, you know, again, this will come up in a future podcast. Um, fantasy is not... I don't go into the more extreme modes of fantasy, probably like um, reading a lot of books or watching a lot of movies when I'm feeling drained and stressed as a way to check out. Um, you know, there's a whole range of, you know, from adaptive to maladaptive kind of behaviors there. But I thought fantasy fit in well, especially with PDAers. Um, one of the techniques that's suggested for PDA children, for instance, is to use role play to help them to complete a task. And um, so that's kind of where I'm putting fantasy as well is in role play. I'm gonna say too, again, I definitely think that what I'm going to describe today applies to all human beings. This is not unique expressions of PDA. Um, I just think that PDA is more, e the anxiety 
in PDA is more easily triggered. Um, PDA, I like how it's being referred to right now as a nervous system disability. So our body goes into fight, flight, freeze, whatever additional Fs you want to add um, more easily than the typical individual. Um, so yeah, it's what I'm going to say isn't going to just be for PDAers, but other people as well. Um, let's see the the reason why um, that you know I think these are applicable especially to PDA people though is that one of the definitions of um, one of the descriptions of PDA is given that we use social strategies in order to cope um, and without trying to get ahead of myself here as far as what I'm saying that means I'll just say that's why I think that PDA and studying PDA um, has kind of helped me to uh, elaborate more on trauma responses because I think we show more of a range of these naturally. Um, how I am structuring this. Now, I don't have images in front of me, obviously. You don't have images in front of you. That's going to be something I'm going to utilize more on um, TikTok and um infographics and so on, but I'm still going to try to describe how I'm structuring this, and I hope that it does clearly come across. I will try to um, elaborate as I go along. You know, it's been a while since I've done just an audio-only format, so please forgive me and bear with me as I try to clearly communicate what I'm talking about and make sure that the ideas come, come across even if I don't have you know, visual illustrations to give you. Um, but again, I'm using what I've written out here for the podcast. I'm using this to then next uh, springboard into making illustrations for TikTok and making illustrations for infographics. And you're going to find that um, on TikTok. So if you're curious about this and you want to have more discussion, you can find me there to engage with it there. So what I pictured when I expanded these trauma responses, um, I have ended up calling fight, flight, and freeze the, I started out by calling them the primary trauma responses. Um, I don't know that I'm going to stick with that language. Um, I think I'm going to call them, um, Let's see if I wrote it down because see now I'm running into forget because I'm freaking out right now. Um, clear. I'm going to call them clear. So these are clear trauma responses. So if someone's engaging in fight, flight, or freeze, it is very obvious what is going on. Um, that it's something is quote unquote wrong with an individual. Really not ambiguous at all. Um, my theory suggested... What if, and again, I'm, I'm saying my theory, but a lot of these are things I have run past um, Sally Cat. So just know that anything I'm saying here is stuff that I've said to her that she has elaborated further on or added to. It's not just my idea. So maybe I should say our ideas here. But uh, this structuring of it is kind of my primary, like my baby, my um, part of the project that I've spent most of my attention on. Um, I created a wheel, so you have in front of you um, a circle. I have divided that circle 
into three equal parts, and that would be like if you were slicing a pizza into three equally sized large slices. Um, the crust of that pizza would be the very outer ring. That is where I would put for each slice fight, flight, and freeze. So each slice is primarily that reaction. Um, as you move towards the center of the pizza, I have a ring drawn out, kind of like, again, moving to a different illustration of maybe like a, a dartboard. Um, so in the center is a bullseye. From the center bullseye, you have another ring, another ring, and then the outer ring. So there's two center rings, a bullseye, and an outer ring. Um, okay. Going from there, um, so fight, flight, and freeze, like I say, are the obvious trauma responses, not ambiguous at all. Everybody who sees fight, flight, or flee freeze knows what they are looking at. But underneath those, I have um, put the other Fs into like subcategories. Um, I see these as a blend, and in the next podcast I do, I'm going to go into more detail about that part of it is like, you know, when does one behavior switch over to being more of a fight response? When does one behavior switch over into being more of a freeze response? But for now, these um, subcategories of Fs I have put under each main category, primary category. So under fight, I have put the funster and the fawn response. Under freeze, I have put the flop and forget response. Under flight, I have put the fib and fantasy responses. Um, explaining more about that and why um, will be coming ahead soon. Real quick though, switching over. Again, sorry if this is confusing how I am structuring this, but I wanna talk real quick about what even is a threat. So we're talking about, you know, these F responses, trauma responses. Um, in the wild, it's pretty obvious what a threat is um, for an animal. An animal is trying to escape death. So you've got natural disasters and you've got predators um, or you've got accidents. So there's a range of behaviors usually encapsulated by fight, flight, and freeze, although in nature as well. Um, and I'll make a note here that I'm also gonna talk about how I think these uh, responses I'm adding, that we're adding, also fit into nature um, and can be found in other animals. But a threat though, so we've got the obvious threats of like a predator or, um, or a natural disaster. We are also social creatures that are reliant on our herd in order to survive. So we are reliant on each other and we also find threats in our herd. That's just the way life is. So our herd is not always a safe space. So I believe that there are these compromises, these blendings of trauma reactions that come out of trying to not stand out. So we want to be able to defend ourselves. All of us do. Any any um, neurotype that you are, whether you're neurodivergent or not, all of us need to be able to both blend into the herd 
and be able to defend ourselves from the herd. And these two needs can create conflicting um, behaviors, conflicting desires. And that is where I see the second ring after fight, flight, and freeze and your pizza from the crust, the next ring down, this set of behaviors that we're adding to as far as F responses, um, I believe that is where their function comes in. Um, they are camouflaged usually. Uh, they are a form of masking. They are confusing to not only predators, but they're confusing to non-predators as well. So it's hard sometimes to tell, for instance, whether the funster response is a threat meant to um, attack someone or make someone uncomfortable, or whether it's just silliness. It's confusing. I guess that's what I mean. So these, these behaviors become kind of confusing because they are based on conflicting needs to both blend in and not stand out, um, but also to be able to defend ourselves from a perceived threat. And these are all instincts. These aren't something I'm going to say is like, you know, yes, I believe um, there are some people that have to intentionally script out um, responses in situations because they found themselves vulnerable and they're like, oh crap, you know, <laughs> oh crap, I was vulnerable in this situation. What do other people do? What do I do? How do I, how do I protect myself in the future from being either embarrassed or um, attacked or abused, you know? And so sometimes we do have to script these things out. But what I find interesting about PDA is you've got kids that are engaging in very elaborate social strategies in order to mask, half mask, and half attack what they perceive as a threat, whether that's coming from um, their social group that they're in or whether it's something else that is threatening them. Um, I think that that, because that social element is part of PDA, is part of the definition of PDA where we use social strategies to deal with our threats. Um, and again, I'm maybe repetitive, but I just want to hammer it in that the need being met there is that we don't want to stand out. And I can say that absolutely for myself, that any time I have engaged in one of these or found myself doing them compulsively, it's the desire that I don't want to be singled out. I don't want to be um, to, to stand out. And because that in nature even is puts you at unique risk. Um you know, you've got the herd and you've got, you know, a predator, say a lion. Usually a lion or predator is going to go for the animal that's on the fringes, the animal that's standing out in some way. They're going to see that. That's what they're going to focus on. Um, so it's just an instinct that we don't want to stand out if we can avoid it. And yet we somehow need to take care of ourselves and get away. Um, but... <laughs> You know, because these socially um, driven responses, there's a whole range of behaviors in here. Um, you know, when I was making this chart, the autistic in me really wanted clear, delineated lines. Like, if you're engaging in fawning, this is what's happening. If you're engaging in flopping, this and this and this is what ha is happening. But as I talked to Sally Cat. I realized, I don't think so. I don't think we're dealing with very clear, you know, um, delineated 
types of behaviors, we're dealing with a whole spectrum of behaviors. And I feel like that's appropriate because we're talking about a spectrum. Um, we're talking about people group that is known by a spectrum, you know, um, autistics and PDAers. We're known by the fact that we show a range of behaviors. And I feel like it's just fitting that um, these F trauma responses ended up being structured in a same way where I feel like, no, it's not, it's not clear boxes here. But, you know, one person might be um, trying to uh, use the funster response in a certain way that's more aggressive while someone else is using the funster to, as a distraction or to blend in more. Um, so again, sorry for throwing so many ideas out here in this podcast and then um, kind of leaving you hanging, but that is something that I'll have to wait and talk about more in the next podcast as far as what that can look like. But these, the sophistication of these responses almost suggests to people that um, they are intentional. Um, it's, it's hard for adults, you know, whether we blame that on traditional parenting. I think traditional parenting pays, plays a role in this. Traditional parenting tends to view um, a child's behavior as being calculated and intentional, either rooted in uh, defiance and control or rooted in um, laziness. So we have this script in our heads that if a child is doing certain things, um, like flopping, so a version of flopping might be, my legs don't work. You know, when the kid says, my legs don't work, and we just, oh, we're so angry. We're so angry because your legs do work. Your legs do work. Who are you fooling? Who are you fooling? And we're attacking that response as an act of aggression. We're attacking that response as an intentional act of aggression. And here, um, as I talk about these things, I'm suggesting no, just because they are different does not mean they are on purpose. They are done for a reason. And a lot of times they are not within the control of the individual who's doing them when they are under distress. Um, okay, looking here at my notes. Um, another aspect too uh, about just this wheel in general. Um, and as I talk about it, I feel like I'm making like... Um, introductions to my introductions to my introductions, but I can't avoid it. I'm sorry. This is how I talk. <laughs> so one thing I want to mention though about um, this whole wheel is that um, I have two big beliefs about this topic. One is that each way of coping that I'm going to discuss has a root purpose and has a real need driving it. Um, there is so much negative connotation around trauma responses, uh, around whether it's on purpose or whether it's sabotaging us. <sighs> a personal growth thing for me is recognizing my body is doing something for a reason. It is not against me. It is not sabotaging me. Um, it has been helpful for me to see why I do what I do in the hopes that I can find a way to meet my need in a way that isn't immediately under distress. So if I have a trauma response to appointments, if I have this reaction to appointments that I can't control and triggers my anxiety, um, instead of getting mad at myself that I'm sleeping all the time, 
because that's something that's happened to me recently. <laughs> I had a lot of appointments. I had a lot of stresses. So my reaction was I needed sleep. Um, instead of getting mad at myself for having the reaction I, I'm having, I find it more effective to validate my reactions and then turn around and look and see, okay, what do I think could have been the trigger here? And from there, try to support myself if it's at all possible. Um, another thing is that I do see each of these as, you know, as we go into the center of the wheel towards the bullseye, each one of these also has a less uh, distressed counterpart um, that's not rooted in anxiety and has a proper place in our lives. These are not going to be gone from your array of how do I say that? I'm not trying to get rid of them is what I'm trying to say. So I'm describing them. I'm explaining them. I'm not doing so with the intention of saying, oh, good. Now you will never have to uh, fight or flee or freeze up ever again. Um, I actually think that as my goal is, is with understanding, with support, we are able to move our nervous system towards more the center of the bullseye and what I put an F there in the center of the bullseye as well. And that F is focus. Focus is where I see us as being regulated. And when we're in a regulated state, we are better able to communicate our needs. And yes, also, also sometimes mask those needs because not everybody in our herd deserves to have access to us. And not every one of these is is maladaptive. Like a lot of them are very adaptive and very helpful. And that is, you know, sorry to say it, but that is what would be in the next podcast is where I want to talk more about the positive aspects of these behaviors. The maladaptive part of it, I believe, is just that when we're in a triggered state, when we're dysregulated, there isn't um, intention behind it. And sometimes it ends up um, hurting us. Because whatever behavior is our go-to, and a lot of us have like two or three or four of these that our brains naturally drift towards. You know, some people are more prone to the fight response. Um, and if we only are utilizing the responses that are uh, natural to us, it's going to create an imbalance in our relationships. Because we should at any point in time in our lives be able to do any one of these depending on a set of circumstances if they're needed, um, you should be able to show your sense of humor. <laughs> you should be able to feel safe. Um, you, you deserve rest. You deserve not to have to think about things all the time. That to me is forget. Like forget is a extreme version of basically taking space mentally. Um, and I don't know if I wrote down, I think later on I kind of wrote down the counterparts for each one of these. So let me see. Yeah. Where I talk about the center of the wheel. So I guess I got kind of distracted, but oh well. The natural flow here. So yeah, just some examples though, real quick. Um, a version of Funster that is more regulated is just being entertaining. You know, you have guests over. You might, you know, crack jokes or show your sense of humor more. You know, that's fine. <laughs> That's good. That's a positive experience. Um, fawning, uh, a more 
regulated version of fawning is charm. Just showing charm towards people to help them feel at ease, to help them let their guard down um, so that you can connect. And that's where, too, I would say um, focus being regulated is different than um, being dysregulated is that in when we're in that world of focus, we are making the choice to be vulnerable versus um, compulsive vulnerability or compulsive inaccessibility. Um, flop, I would say a regulated version of flop is rest. Um, a regulated version of forgetting is to revisit something after you go, you know, after you just choose not to think about it for a while because you need to maybe rest or whatever. Um, a regulated version of, of fantasy is just daydreaming, brainstorming, hypotheticals, reading fantasy um, can be a version, role play, actually. Uh, to me, role play is a great way to practice social situations and social scripts in a safe way. Um, and fib, a more regulated, regulated version of fib is privacy. Not everybody deserves to have access to us, and we are entitled to the right to privacy and not having to tell people things. Fibbing is just a dysregulated way of achieving that goal, or lying, basically. Um, going back to my little notesies here. So yeah, this ties in, all this stuff ties in with um, personal growth. And again, my goal isn't to... Um, discredit these or get rid of them or whatever my goal is to understand them and hopefully by understanding it helps us for me anyway when I understand myself a little bit more it helps me achieve a more regulated state because I don't see myself as the enemy um I can't <laughs> I can't view myself as the enemy if I do then I'm I'm fighting myself as much as I'm fighting any of the other triggers outside of me so I do believe there's a reason for why we do what we do and starting there is a is a good mindset to take on and to to become restful in um, so you have one less threat to respond to okay so revisiting the wheel Part of the reason too, I, I hope it's not super confusing how I'm breaking this up into pieces. Um, this is a big topic. I can't help that it's kind of complicated. Um, so one reason why I'm taking the approach of like, let me introduce this thing. Okay, let's talk about why. Let me reintroduce it. I feel like um, just in order to get the whole picture, and especially when I don't have any images to share with you over a podcast, um, I think that stepping away from the wheel is, and then revisiting it again is going to help kind of solidify the picture I'm trying to give in, in the mind. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm pretty new at this. So, oh boy. Okay. <laughs> so looking back, if we go back to the wheel, um, like I said, we've got a pizza, we've got the outer crust, which is your obvious trauma responses of fight, flight, and freeze. And then I said that I put each one of those. Um, subcategories underneath primarily fight, flight, or freeze. Now, if I didn't say it already, I do see these other F responses as blends. And I, I am going to talk about that in the next one. I want to break that down a little bit more where you have this transition from where something is both a fight response and a freeze response to being a fight response and a flight response. Um, there's 
some gradation here in where one thing might be more an expression of freezing or one thing might be more flight. It is a spectrum. So as confusing as that is, <laughs> that is why it is confusing because it is a spectrum of behavior that I'm going to try to break down in a second podcast so that I don't make people's brains explode. Um, but at least in this podcast to explain why did I put um, certain of the other F responses primarily under fight, flight, or freeze. So looking at fawning and funster, why did I put these primarily under fight? Um, the reason why is that I see fight as when we engage with the threat by moving towards it. So we're interacting with the threat. Fight is also taking those emotions, the anxiety, whatever it is that's on the inside, and it's pushed outwards. So it's very clear emotionally what is going on. Um, so fight isn't a movement towards a threat. It's also an external expression of our emotional state. Flight, I see as we're bodily moving away from the threat, and also our emotions are going away from the threat. Freeze is immobility. Um, now, whether or not freeze is triggered because, you know, fight or free, like if the body's torn between, oh, should I fight or should I flee? And let's say it's undecided, so it freezes. Um, that could be the case. That could be where freeze comes from. But I also think there is a secondary goal that's achieved with freeze, which is confusion. So you're going to see freeze a lot in nature, and it triggers the goal, quote unquote, is that it triggers confusion in a predator. Um, is this animal dead? <laughs> you know, it's not moving anymore. If it's not dead, maybe it's not prey. So so whether or not it's just kind of like, oh, well, the go-to third option because of whatever. I, I think that a case could be made that freeze has its own goal that's achieved, and that is confusion. So yeah, immobility at a threat, physical immobility at a threat. Also, emotions are frozen. Emotions aren't expressed. They're just stuck in place. Um, and so taking a look here at, I put fawning and funster, both underneath the fight response. And that was because of seeing them as a direct interaction with the threat. Um, trying to influence the threat, trying to dominate the threat, because that is also a goal of fighting, is to dominate the threat. So to me, Funster, is a, it, when it's out of control, it feels to me anyway, and what I've heard other parents expressed is it just feels overwhelming. It does feel like someone's trying to control you by making you laugh. <laughs> and it's, it's like very triggering. That actually triggers my PDA is to have that Funster response directed at me. feels overwhelming. Um, fawning is again, I believe, a way to try to control um, or dominate the threat. The narrative when fawning is usually talked about, this is my funnest one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have the most fun talking about fawning when I do my next podcast. Um, so fawning is normally discussed, you know, we discuss the cons, which is I've lost control. I am submitting myself to somebody who's hurting me, et cetera, et cetera. But actually a goal of fawning is manipulation. Um, so whether you're submitting, you're fawning by submitting to someone else, I believe that the goal, the instinctive goal is to get the threat to stop treating you 
in a threatening manner, to see you as a non-threat. And so in that way, I put it as a fight category because you are directly engaging with the threat in order to dominate it. And I've had it happen to me. I've had people treat me in a fawning way to agree to things, to say things, to placate, when I don't think I was a threat to them, but they were treating me as one because of, you know, baggage or past or whatever. And it felt on my end just like manipulation, just like I felt basically violated into leaving them alone or something. Um, so that's kind of why I put fawning there. Um, under flight, I put um, fib and fantasy. Um, it is getting away from the threat, I believe. It is not engaging with the threat. Fantasy is engaging with something else. Fibbing is trying to kind of direct the threat somewhere else. So you're lying in order to, oopsies, just knocked my lamp. Fibbing is, uh, I believe the goal is there to direct the threat into something else instead of yourself. So you're moving the threat in another direction. Um, I put flopping and forgetting under freeze. I think that one might, these two might be more obvious. Flopping is a version of freezing because it's inaction. Uh, forgetting is also inaction, whether involuntary or not. Um, forgetting is not interacting or engaging with the threat, finding a way to get away from it. And see, these are blends. <laughs> so too confusing for me right now to cram all these ideas into one podcast. But these are going to be blends, and I love breaking them down. I think when I started doing that, when I started to kind of piece apart like different diagnoses, different descriptions of different behavior, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so fascinating because I feel like this is a version of forgetting that's more of a um, fight response. And this is a version of forgetting that's more of a um, flight response. But anyway, I don't, like I said, don't want to make people's brains explode in this podcast. Oh, deep breath here. Um, so the, the thing I'm going to end with, um, that was just how I categorized the wheel. Um, the thing I just want to end with is circling back to um, the audience. Like, why is this relevant? You know, what, what am I, why am I talking about this at all? Um, you know, I've kind of said, hey, you know, PDA kids or kids that go through trauma do these things. PDA kids are under trauma. PDA kids are, are under trauma by our environment. We don't even need any additional trauma. Just living life is traumatic. So you've got these kids who are doing this whole range of behavior. You've got this popular parenting style that says if kids are behaving this way, then they're intentionally doing it. They're manipulating. Well, yeah, maybe they are manipulating, but they're manipulating to fill a need. So the reason why I'm talking about this is even in PDA adults, we are prone to do these things instinctively. We are prone to have these complex, complex, complicated reactions to both social demands, um, trying to fit in with our uh, peer groups, and then we also have um, just this need to protect ourselves, basically. And so in the moment, we are doing these things too, still, as adults, as PDA adults. Um, and I just really, one of the goals in talking about this is to show that it's an instinct, to show that it's not intentional, to demonstrate why I think it's an instinct and where that could be coming from. And um, 
because all that's going to work with PDA kids is um, helping with the triggers, helping with the demands, providing support. For a lot of parents, that is super, super hard to do because we're just ingrained that tough love is sometimes necessary. And I'm sorry, life is tough. (laughs) So, you know, if you've got a nervous system disorder, we are already surrounded by toughness and what we need to help compensate for that in order for us to develop and grow and not um, become adults with even more uh, trauma attached to the natural trauma we experience day to day is to have our needs supported. So understanding the behavior from childhood to adulthood in PDAers is I think extremely important. And yeah, I will kind of save it to to talk more about abuse. Um, I do want to address abuse. I want to address, you know, I'm not trying to give license to anybody acting in ways that hurt other people's and not, and just like write a blank check. This isn't to write a blank check. It's, It's definitely going to be addressing different audiences at different levels and saying, you know, this group of people absolutely needs support. And that's always going to be children to me. Children are always going to be the group of people that I'm going to say they need support. They are relying on their adults to provide um, a safety net for them to get through the demands of life. Um, And, you know, if a kid's not PDA and they're showing these behaviors, it's for a reason too. So there's always a reason for the behaviors. There's always a need that a parent needs to figure out and meet or um, not just a parent, but caregivers, the team, whoever's in charge of helping needs to view it this way if they're actually gonna be effective in helping. So if you haven't already um, checked it out, I finally read The Explosive Child, and that's um, by Ross Green. Very, very good. Um, Ross Green's approach is basically this too, that like, hey, look, whatever the reasons are for a kid's behavior, we need to work with them, not against them and not see them with this certain, so they call it a lens shift. So shifting your lens to seeing um, it from a support perspective and not a domineering and controlling point of view. Um, But yeah, I'll save any other talk, whether it's about abuse in these behaviors we might see or how they're broken down even further. I might have to do two podcasts again so I don't blow your guys' brains up with my thoughts. (laughs) So many thoughts, but... Yeah, that's, you know, this has been one of the just struggles with the book. It's like, how much of this is relevant to, if we're going to talk just about PDAers, how much of this is relevant to that audience? And I might have to write a second book that just is talking about this because I, I have this belief and this feeling that studying PDAers is actually going to open up a lot of understanding towards adults that aren't PDA and just the human condition and how human beings function when they're under stress, when they're, um, when they're under duress. And so maybe that will be one of our gifts to the world is showing the world like where the hurt is and that it is hurt. So anyway, thank you for listening for today. Um, I'm going to try to, maybe I'll break this up into, you know, like do a softer, um, Oh, I I guess something less idea heavy as far as podcasts go, (laughs) just to kind of give us a little bit of cushion here. But anyway, thank you all for listening and uh, I hope you visit me again soon. Bye.